Welcome to the Business Psychology Podcast, where we'll be discussing how businesses can use psychology to better understand human behaviour. I'm Rebecca Longman. And I'm Jessica Welch, talking to you from Innovation Bubble, a global consultancy. In each episode, we'll be discussing how psychology applies to current topics in the world of work. Sometimes we'll bring relevant guests, and other times it will just be the two of us. We hope you enjoy the Business Psychology Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Lois P. Frankel. She's the president of Corporate Coaching International, a best-selling author, an executive coach, and an expert in the field of leadership development for women. She's appeared on Larry King Live, The Tevis Smiley Show, The Today Show, CNBC, and PBS to discuss her New York Times best-selling books, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, Nice Girls Don't Get Rich, and Nice Girls Just Don't Get It. We're excited to have Great. you Great. So today we have Dr. Lois Franco with us. We are very excited to have her here. Thank you so much for joining us, Lois. Thank you for inviting me to be with you. I'm delighted. Um, so for those who may not know of you, could you give us a little bit of a, a background to yourself, who you are, what have you done to date, and, and what are you doing now? Oh, you know, I don't want to bore you with everything, so I'm just going to start with uh, when I wrote Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, which was published in 2000, uh, 2004. Um, it really was a changing point in my career because up until then, I'd been an executive coach, and I worked with both men and women, but primarily with men. And so when Corner Office came out, all of a sudden I became this coach for women and a spokesperson for women. And it, not that I minded that, it was just kind of a shift in, in uh, where I was working. And so for the past, so that was 2004, so that's already been 15 years, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, and so in the interim, I've written um, three more Nice Girls books and a couple of other books as well. And I do keynote speaking. And I still do a little bit of coaching. I still have a business called Corporate Coaching International. And uh, we're located in Pasadena, California. And I don't do as much of the coaching, but I have other coaches that go out and do similar things to what I do. And so really, Corner Office was kind of life-changing for me because it put me on a different kind of um, stage and a different kind of platform where I, where I was able to address some of the issues that I remembered thinking about well before uh, I became a coach and well before I wrote this book. And it's, it's almost like I came full circle to where I was because in between, I realized there wasn't a lot of money in women, mm. which is why mm. as a coach, I was working primarily with men because that's who had the money to pay for coaching. Um, right. And that's who companies were going to um, pay for uh, coaching for. And so it was really nice to come full circle and um, become much more involved in uh, women in the workplace and those issues. Okay. Interesting. That's really interesting that you say that you worked primarily with men and then, um, then this book came about, you know, off the back of that. And it's interesting that it sounds to me when I first read it um, that I can, I now understand that, the references, the fact that it came from that perspective, um, because it very much focuses on the idea that women should be more like men, in a sense. Um, oh no, I have to step you. Oh, I have to step you oh. right there, because that's if that's my intent. If that was never my intent. Oh, okay. um, my intent was always 
that women have to be women and not the nice little girls they were taught to be in childhood. And in order to do that, they needed to develop more um, or they need to develop more grown-up behaviors because really the intention is not to suggest women be more like men because we can't be like men. We're not men. Right. We're, we're right. women. Right. Right. But we also can't be the nice little girl we were taught to be in childhood and expect to achieve our adult goals. Okay. That's interesting. That makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that's a, that's a different, slightly different perspective again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. And, and so, oh, carry on. No, I was just going to say, what is it exactly that, that gets you in the way then? Do you, do you think that women then hold on to this nice girl um, attitude and, and boys and men don't, they leave that behind as they age or, or how, what's, what's the thought behind there? Yeah, that when you think about the messages that little boys and little girls get in childhood. Now, I know this is changing very rapidly, that more and more parents are giving little girls messages. You can be anything you want. You can compete. You you know, nothing's going to hold you back. I know parents are giving those messages. But in schools, in the media, um, sometimes in churches, um, in all other kinds of places in between, sometimes grandparents, they're giving different messages to girls than they give to boys. Mm-hmm. They give boys the message, be tough, be strong, don't let anybody take advantage of you. And girls just don't get those messages. Even when they get messages about you can do anything you want, they're still not getting messages, be tough, be strong, don't let anybody take advantage of you for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about how little girls and little boys grow up, boys grow up with the messages that are going to support their success. Little girls don't grow up with those messages. And um, as I said, even though um, things are changing in terms of the messages that many parents are giving to their girls, some of it's regional, some of it's geographic, some of it's cultural. I did a group of, um, it was Iranian Jewish physician women not too long ago. Now, these were very um, accomplished women, very accomplished and very smart. And they were talking about the fact that when they go home for, you know, Friday night dinner, that their parents say things like, when are you going to give up on this idea of being a doctor and just settle down and have a family? So even now, um, women are still getting the same messages they got as little girls or the the the, the woman who told me after a keynote that uh, when she announced to her parents she wanted to be an engineer, her mother said, oh, great, now you'll never get married. So it's these kinds of messages that hold women back. And again, of course, there's the media. And as I said, there's um, all kinds of things in our society. I mean, you just look at the Catholic Church and you see that there's no women in control in the church, although some would say that the sisters kind of secretly control things, but they're really serving is what they're doing. Yes, they are servant leaders, mm. but they're not in positions of power. Mm. And so, so this, yeah, sorry, go on, Rebecca. Go on, Jess, you finish it, finish your thought. No, I wanted to touch on one of your, of, of the mistakes that, that you touch on in your, in the very first book, um, where you talk about playing the game. Um, and, and I find that one quite interesting because I, I, I think it's, um, 
it's something that I'm trying to just understand from your point of view. You're suggesting that we do need to play the game, but to what capacity? Yes. Well, I think what women don't get is that every workplace is a game. Mm. There are rules, there are boundaries, there are strategies. And in order to win the game, you've got to be in it. You've got to understand what are the rules, boundaries, and strategies. Now, guys kind of get that because traditionally, at least, you know, they've been involved in competitive sports. Again, more women are involved in competitive sports today, but not more than men. And so women tend to look at the workplace as some, something that you come to work and it kind of, we all play nicely together in the sandbox. Let's all just get together. Let's get along together nicely. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We should get along together nicely. But if you want to win the game, and by winning the game, I mean, if you want to achieve your professional goals, You've got to understand that it is a game. Now, that doesn't mean that your, your goal is to beat out everyone else, but it is to play your professional best. And you do that by looking at the playing field and saying, okay, so what are the rules in my company or in my department? Because the rules change from department to department, um, from company to company, uh, from boss to boss. All the rules change. And so just because you were successful in one environment doesn't mean you're going to be successful in another environment. And again, let me give you an example. There was, I was doing a keynote at, um, at a defense company in um, Washington, D.C. And I was talking about this whole idea about the, about the workplace being a game. And there were both men and women in the room. And I talked to the men about, um, or I was talking to both of them. I was looking for an example that would cross uh, genders. And I said, um, you know, in this company, for example, um, creativity, the playing field for creativity is narrower than it is at a place like Walt Disney Company. So whereas at Walt Disney Company, you could be very creative. The boundaries are practically non-existent. Mm -hmm. At a defense company, if you're overly creative, you could kind of get seen as a little bit out there, right? Mm -hmm. So this one woman raises her hand and she goes, that explains everything. And I said, what does it explain? And she said, I used to work at Walt Disney. And whereas I could do no wrong there, I can do no right here. And so that's what I mean about the game. It's understanding that the rules are in the, in the boundaries and the strategies, they're so much different from place to place. And you've got to be more observant of them if you want to win the game. Okay. That's interesting. So um, I like this idea of playing the game and playing the rules because I, as I, as you're alluding to, Certainly, every single organization that you go into has a different culture. But the, the limitations I have with that thinking are that in today's world, as you were just describing, for example, when you talked about the church, there are still a predominant number of males in leadership positions as opposed to females. Now, and then if you look at things like the gender pay gap, there's all of these rules that, in my mind, are are unfair or incorrect in some way. You know, these, these rules um, potentially need shifting or they need changing or they need to be broken, perhaps. Do you think that there's, a, there's mileage in that? Do you agree with any of those ideas or do you think 
we have to sort of play within the boundaries that are already set rather than shifting those boundaries. Well, I happen to agree with you 100% that it's not fair and that there are different rules. And that's one of the things I talk about in corner office is that if you take the um, behavior of assertiveness and you put it on a playing field, men have no boundaries around assertiveness, right? They can't go out of bounds because they're expected to be assertive. If I do the exact same thing or I say the exact same thing as a man says, I'm called pushy or worse, right, or bossy or whatever. And that's because the boundaries for women and assertiveness are narrower than for men. With that said, do I think we need to, like, play it safe and be smack dab in the middle of the playing field? No. The way we change the boundaries and we expand them for everyone is by playing our game at the edge. If you Mm. think of every single game you can think of, every single game I can think of at least, um, people people who win the game play at the edge. I mean, I'm just going to take tennis, for example. Um, Mm. If you hit the ball smack dab in the middle of your opponent's court every single time, they're going to get those balls. But if you hit the ball along the edge in the back corner, back right hand, back uh, backhand corner, if if you're play, if you're a tennis player, you know that that's going to be harder for that opponent to get that ball. And the same thing for us. We need to play our game on the edge because by playing on the edge, we expand the boundaries for everyone. Gradually, those boundaries get wider. Now, the other thing that we need to understand is that the longer you're on a playing field, the more you can make some mistakes. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you start in a company, if, you, you know, if I just start tomorrow and I start saying, oh, no, I'm going to be as assertive as I want. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to be just as assertive as the guy in the office next to me. You haven't earned enough collateral to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the longer you're there, the more you get to go out of bounds to take those risks. And when you go out of bounds, you change the the bounds for everyone. So there's a couple ways to do it. Um, And there's another thing is once you are in a leadership role, you need to help expand the boundaries for women by pushing back on um, some of the old stereotypes. So that if, if you're in a position of leadership and you're in a meeting and someone says, oh, you know, Jessica is just a little bit too pushy for me. You know, I need to, as a woman, need to be willing to say, well, wait a minute. I don't see her as pushy. I see her as being smart and capable and having a voice, which is what we value in this company. So we also need to be willing to do that. I'm interested in finding out. I don't know if you've heard of of this one book um, called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? I haven't, but it's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really, we've actually had the author on the show as well. It's a really, really interesting book, but it's essentially saying that um, the, the new research that's come out is showing that feminine traits, what's considered, and I use, you know, loose, um, when I say feminine traits, it's, it's quite loose, but it's uh, such as empathy and, and people skills, being more altruistic in your ways and being more able to control your impulses they're all traits of a more effective leader than those we are currently mm-hmm. valuing, which is charisma, assertiveness, confidence. How do you feel about that? Oh, I agree 100%. Because uh, when I was doing a lot of coaching with men, um, I used to talk to them about what I called the feminization of leadership. That 
whereas leadership was masculine for centuries and centuries, um, and, and masculine leadership is top-down, it's punitive, it's authoritative, um, feminine leadership is all those things you talk about. It's bottom-up, it's inclusive, it listens, it's uh, empathetic. It's all those things you just described. Now, those also happen to be what you described are the characteristics of emotionally intelligent people. That emotional intelligence consists of self-awareness, self-regulation, self-motivation, empathy, and social skills. Right? That's one definition. By one definition, that's, those are the traits of um, emotional intelligence. And what we know is that emotional intelligence is the sine qua non for leadership. That if you are not emotionally intelligent, you will never be able to lead people effectively. And so I'm behind that 100%. And how do you think we can change from going? And I I personally, I have an issue with calling it masculine and feminine traits, although I understand Mm -hmm. where it comes from. But I think that that's actually... um, adding to the problem in a way because we've got these kind of views of what masculine is supposed to be is it and it's still considered somewhat positive in the business world to to have these masculine traits and the feminine is still considered somewhat of it being a disadvantage so i wonder whether that's one of the issues that we're having that we're putting these labels on on leadership styles or traits um, I don't know how, how you, I don't even know where you stand on that, Rebecca, but I, that's one of my personal views. Mm, and I, no, I agree. Yeah, you know, and, and I agree with you that when we put those labels on them, they become somewhat divisive, which is why I prefer to use the term emotional intelligence, because what we know also is that women exceed men in four of those five um, descriptors of emotional intelligence. Mm. Women are better than men at self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, and social skills, okay? Men and women are equal on the self-motivation scale. So that if we called it emotional intelligence, I think women would get a lot more mileage out of it. Um, The other thing is, I also don't want us to get too PC and throw the baby out with the bathwater. I I approached uh, a male colleague of mine um, the year before last, and I said, you know, I want to do this keynote and I want to do it with a man and I want to talk about how women need to look at some of the things men do and incorporate them into their skill set. But men have to look at some of the things women do and incorporate them into their skill set too. And so we put together this, this whole presentation that's called why, why men are heard and women are liked that you know, there's certain things that men do that get them heard, and there's certain things that women do that get them liked, and both are important ingredients of success. You, you have to have both. You can, if you're only heard but not liked, you won't be successful. And if you're only liked but not heard, you won't be successful. So we really talk about how we can learn from each other. And I would like to see that happen a little bit more, but after we, we did a few presentations, we realized people weren't really interested in that because it wasn't – Maybe it wasn't divisive enough. I don't know. But um, we didn't get as much traction out of it as we had hoped. Um, so I wonder, so there's, this is sort of related, I, I think, in a way to what you were just saying. Um, I feel like I've read 
a lot recently or, or see references to women who get into high-powered leadership, leadership positions and then believe that throughout their career that's what they're looking for and then they make it in inverted commas um, and realize that it actually doesn't make them happy and try and find a way to get out of the rat race so to speak um, so I guess there's a couple of questions from there really is there really an argument for just kind of being yourself and not trying to play that game and then is there something that we need to do in order to better understand what our values are instead of getting trapped in the um, the cultural norms that exist that we are trying to either um, be like or fight against in in um, sort of industries where people try and become leaders? Well, you know, that's a very complex question um, because my first thought when you were asking it was, well, men get trapped too. And yeah, true. Right? And they find that they're not yeah. happy with what they're doing either. I think particularly younger men. I think mm. older men, maybe, you know, my generation, maybe the baby boomers, they felt like they had no choice um, mm. because kind of this is what you were supposed to do with your life. But I think younger generations realize I don't have to do this with my life. So that's my first thought. My second thought is you're absolutely right that it's about living your values. But it isn't um, an either-or proposition. It's not that I either live my values or I climb the corporate ladder or I become you know, uber successful. Because I'll use myself as an example. I worked in a corporation for many years, an oil company, that was very good to me. And I learned everything I learned about business, I learned at this company. So I'm grateful to it. But the entire time I was there, I felt like I was a fish out of water. I felt like I didn't belong there like some other people did. And so I decided I was going to leave and start my own business. And when I did, I remembered thinking to myself, well, you know, you've just given up a lot of money and a lot of prestige because it was a very prestigious company in the, in the, in the um, community. And, you know, even if I never earn as much as I earned here, I'll be happier. That's the way I thought of it. But then I realized, after I was out for a while, I realized, wait a minute, why don't I play to my strengths? Why don't I play to the fact that I love working with people, I'm a psychologist, I have a business background, why don't I become an executive coach? Because they make a lot of money. Mm. And when I turned my thinking around and said, I can be very successful, and I can live my values. Things all fell into place for me. Um, and so I don't want people to think you either live your values and you kind of live this simple, a simpler life, or you have to like not live your values to be successful, because I think there are many places in between that you can go. I look at someone like um, one of my own heroes, which is Mary Kay Ash. I know it sounds like a unusual hero. But Mary Kay Ash started Mary Kay Cosmetics. And when she started it, she said, I want to start a company where women can be financially independent, and God can come first, and work can come second. Now, how many people start a company and say, I want my, I, I want my, no, no, she said, I'm sorry, God can come first, family can come second, and work will come third. How many people start a business and say, I want work to come third in my employees' lives? 
right? Mm. Um, so she's another one who said, I can live my values and I can be successful. And I hope I answered that question. Yeah, just to follow up on that, do you think that you could have lived your values at, within a company or do you think you had to leave in order to, to do that for yourself? Well, in my case, I felt like I had to leave because I had, while I was working at this company, I went to school at night to get my PhD in counseling psychology because I wanted to use it in the employee assistance department. And an employee assistance department is where employees come for uh, counseling. And I thought I'd be very happy doing that in this company, working in employee assistance. But what they told me was that I was doing great where I was and I should just stay there. And in other words, my boss didn't want to let me go because I was doing a really great job for him. Okay. And I had to leave. I, if I could have transferred to a different department, I think I might have been happy there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as the way things worked out, uh, it worked out better than I could have ever imagined because if I didn't become a coach, there would never be nice girls don't get the corner office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an interesting idea because I think earlier in our conversation you were saying that you know in order to be able to break the rules um, that exist in our society for people to get into positions of, of leadership you have to kind of play the rules first and I think what you're saying by saying that you left an organization to do your own thing in some ways you're breaking the rules because you're saying I'm not going to sit within that realm that people expect me to sit within I'm going to do my own thing but at the same time you're not breaking the rules in that you're walking away from the rules to kind of do your, your own thing and, and almost create your own path. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of a conflict, but not quite. Uh, do you see what I'm getting at there? There's, there's sort of two different ways of looking at that. Um, yeah, I agree with you that there are two different ways of looking at it and that you know, I think, you know, I wrote an article a number of years ago and it was about how you spend the last part of your career. And I created this career hierarchy that said, you know, just like there's Maslow's hierarchy that first we need to have, you know, food and water and safety and then before we can get to self-actualization. Well, I think the same is true for a career, that we have to start off learning the basics, right? We have to get prepared. We have to get educated. Then we need to learn the basics of our craft. And then we need to learn about leadership. And then we need... But then, you know, we get to a certain place in our careers where we can do our jobs with our eyes closed. Yeah. And that's the time when we start to get restless and we think, I think I'll find another job. But instead of finding another job, maybe we should take all those privileges that we've earned and change the system. Because I can tell you if I had stayed within the company, I would have worked to change the system. I would have worked to to get many more women into leadership roles, people of color, um, and so forth. And I saw other people there before I left. I saw other people who had the collateral, who had earned it. I saw them doing it. And Mm -hmm. I thought, gee, when I get older, I just wasn't old enough, didn't have enough collateral. But I, I did write this article about when you get to that stage of your career, start taking more risks and make a difference for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And that thread, I think, comes through in a lot of what I got from your book, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. It's this idea that you have to fail to succeed. You've got to kind of earn your stripes, learn the system, learn the ropes, fail a, a bunch of times, and then fight the system. Like, either go out on your own or 
change the things that don't work, um, but have the confidence to do that. But in order to get there, you, you've got to you've got to earn your stripes first. Yeah, I feel that way. You know, and I think too many people come into organizations and, and feel entitled. You know, and I think that's part yeah. of that that we've done with everybody wins a trophy idea. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's great. Everybody wins a trophy. Well, you know, the fact is that we're we're not great until we make ourselves great. It's not like we're not born great. It's more like we have to develop ourselves. And and losing a softball game and getting a trophy to me, just I'm old fashioned, I guess. And I'll probably you know get emails about this. <laughs> to me, I'm old fashioned, and I just don't think that, that that's the right thing. I mean, how do we teach? children to be competitive and be them their best selves if we reward them for not being their best selves mm. yeah i fully agree yeah I said that as well i think you know if you're telling your children or whomever you have around you that you have an influence over that the world is is in any way just equal and everyone should have the same you're doing them a disservice you're you're setting expectations that are going to come crashing down quite quickly in in the real world so I absolutely agree with you there. Yeah, that, that's my opinion. And, and, you know, and it's okay to want to live in an egalitarian society. That's absolutely okay. It's not in my DNA, but it's in the DNA of other people. And if that's what you want to do, I'm not judging it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's perfectly, that's perfectly all right. I mean, you, you probably live a lot more sane life than I have anyway. So I think yeah. for me, the big question um, is how do you think, I know, your very first book was 2004, in particular, uh, and then you did a revised version in 2014. Um, I'd love to hear how you think the world has changed, or the business world rather has changed for women, if at all. Yeah, you know, and, and as I talk about in the preface to Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office, that was published in 2014, it was the book I wish I never had to write. Mm. Because if we'd made that much progress in a decade, I wouldn't have need. I wouldn't have needed to write the book, right? Um, my feeling is that we continue to live in a patriarchal society. Um, it is very slowly shifting. I was at a women's conference the other day, and we were talking about it, and we were talking about the numbers of women in CEO roles and on corporate boards, mm-hmm. and how they have not changed much in decades. And I said, you know, back when I was working in that oil company, that was like almost, well, when I first started there, it was like 40 years ago. And we were talking about these issues. And we are still talking about these issues, about how do we promote more women? How do we attract more women? How do we retain more women? It's like, we are still talking about these issues 40 years Later, there's something wrong with this picture. Forbes just put out an article uh, about the 100 most um, innovative people in business. There was one woman on the list. (laughs) Right? Um, And fortunately, uh, Valerie Jarrett, who used to be an advisor to uh, President Barack Obama, she called them out. And she said, how could you put an article like this out without checking to see if it was inclusive. And now, to Forbes' credit, they admitted that, yeah, we made a mistake here. But these are the kinds of things that happen all the time. When I look at pictures of, for example, President Trump, 
and all of his advisors. There's a problem with that picture. There's usually only one woman in the picture, or two maybe, out of 20 men. And I, and I think I look at uh, Parliament in Great Britain, look at what mm-hmm. happened to Theresa May, mm-hmm. right? Um, look at what happened to uh, Julia Gillard in Australia. Uh, we just see these things continuing to happen. But I, I guess one of the issues around that is um, down to women being mothers, bearing children. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I would say now, certainly, um, there's less women who are uh, deciding to make that choice in their lives and and that are deciding to be childless. Um, But certainly, when women do decide to have children, and they get, you know, if they decide to have a couple of kids, it it might end up being something like three, four, five years out of work. Um, They are put back, you know, and they are, in some sense, excluded from that path to success, again, in inverted commas, Um, you know, it's nature in a sense. So how do we accommodate for that um, to ensure that women still get that fair chance to climb that ladder? Yeah, you're right. I mean, they pay the the mommy or the baby penalty, don't they, when they come back in? Um, Well, for me, one of the answers is that the more women we have in roles that make decisions about policy, the more we're going to see that change, right? So we need to have more women in executive and senior roles that address some of these issues because where we see women um, at the helm of companies, we're seeing more socially progressive policies implemented. So that's number one. I think we as women need to be more demanding, we need to say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm happy to, and I had a woman tell me this just the other day, I was just thinking about it, um, that she said, you know, I'm happy to come to work for this company because they really wanted her. And she said, but here's what I need in order to come. I need to know that I can take time off when my kids need me. I know I need to know that I can do, you know, when my elderly parents get sick, that, that I'm going to be able to take them to the doctor. I need all of these things. So I think right. we need to be able to ask for those things as well. Um, and to some degree, you know, I don't usually like to see government get involved in things, but we get involved in all aspects of, the, of our, they, they're involved in our, all aspects of our lives anyway. Mm-hmm. So why yeah. aren't we seeing more legislation around this? Why aren't we yeah. seeing, you know, that, well, you know, there, there are laws in the United States against, um, you know, against penalizing women who take time off work to have a baby, but they don't extend to it. And so when they come back, what happens, right? Yeah. So we've got, we've just got a lot of work to be doing. Yeah, and do you think I that agree with that. Quotas are a way to, to do this. You know, personally, I do. And again, I don't want anybody writing me letters. Um, <laughs> but you uh, use the word quotas. But let me give an example. In the 1970s, when Lyndon Johnson was president, what he said, was it 1970? It, it could have been the 60s. Wait a minute. It might have been the 60s. You know? mm-hmm. But anyway, when Lyndon Johnson was president, what he said was, we can't measure a company's success in ensuring diversity by them saying, I've got these policies in place because everybody says I don't discriminate, right? Mm. So what he said was, we're going to measure your progress 
by how many women and at the time they called them minorities, women and minorities um, you hire. And if you are a federal contractor, if you get money from the government, you must hire certain percentages of women and minorities. And that's when we saw the dial start to shift because you had to, by law, hire these people, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can't legislate attitudes. I can't legislate that you're going to like it to hire more women and people of color and differently abled people and people who don't look like you or sound like you. Um, I can't legislate that. But I can legislate that if you're going to get money from the government, here's what you need to do. And as I said, then we saw the dial start to shift. And then when that, when they pulled back on that, we saw it start to go back in the other direction. So it's not so much quotas I want, but I want people to be held accountable. And so, for example, just the other day, I was saying to somebody who was a um, HR person, I said, you know, if your company from the top would say that 20% of every executive's compensation will be measured or, or will be determined by the degree to which they hire, retract, and retain women and people of color, you know, just related to diversity, mm-hmm. you would see them start to focus on it because what, what you measure is what you get. True. And that's why when you use the word quotas, it's not so much quotas, it's about the measurement that I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, because you wouldn't have to, ha- you know, I'm just thinking about it out loud for a second now. So, you know, you can, people can stop thinking they're going to write to me. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it, it's not so much the quotas. That's not the thing. It's the measuring performance will automatically get you where you want to go. Yeah, I, we've definitely had people on the show um, not talking about this particular issue, but talking in general about, you, the behaviors that you measure are the behaviors that you get. And people in positions of leadership or management, you know, question why, um, you know, they're getting the behaviors they are. For example, you know, they are saying to people, well, we want you to work as more of a team when people are working as individuals and they forget that they're rewarding them. Um, they're measuring their behaviors as, as individual behaviors. And, you know, they, they forget to kind of go back to well, what, what are the processes that we've got in place around this? Um, and, and that's when they see changes, when they start to make changes to those systems that evaluate those people. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. That's what I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I could hear you, Elizabeth. I think I'm quite conscious of time. So I think um, I want to round up a little bit with our um, final three that we have. So we have three final questions, which is completely unrelated to what we've talked about. So it's just Uh about you. (laughs) Nothing too too crazy. (laughs) So the very first question is, given the choice of anyone in the world, who would you want as a dinner guest? Alive or dead? Or both. Oh, it would definitely be um, Eleanor Roosevelt for me. Why is that? You know, because I felt like she was someone who had huge emotional intelligence, overcame huge obstacles, um, found her voice, um, was really a power for good. And I would like to pick her brain about how she came about doing all of that. 
So I, it would, you know, it would either be her or, you know, that's why I've always said, but now another one came to mind, which was Amelia Earhart. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was another one who was ahead of her time. And she wasn't as much of a social leader, but in some ways she was, because she she encouraged girls to uh, go to college and to get engineering degrees. And a lot of people don't know that about Amelia Earhart. So if I had a dinner party, I'd invite both of them. Mm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, cool. <laughs> All right. And um, the next question is, how do you define happiness? Oh, boy, nobody's ever asked me that one before. But I would define <laughs> happiness as living my values. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I'm living my values, 360, 360 degrees, right? If I'm living it every way, professionally doing what I love, um, earning enough money to uh, live my life the way I want, free from concerns about money, um, making a difference in society, giving back to the community. If I'm living my values, then I'm happy. I think that's one of the most concise answers we've had so far on the, on the show. So that's oh, great. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, good. And the final question, what scares you? Oh, if I were to be 100% honest, what scares me most is my own demise is the thought that one day I will not be here. And that pushes me and motivates me to do more every single day than I probably should be doing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, oh, that's really interesting. That's, that's, I think that's going to sit with me at least for the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I hope in a good way. Yeah. yeah, I think it will. It just it just kind of resonated with me. I, I think I started to picture myself as no longer here and the impact of that and, and of others not being here. It's quite poignant. Um, anyway, I think that's, that's pretty much it. That's all we've got time for. So um, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been fascinating. Um, we've definitely enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Um, I have, and if I can just make one little pitch here for myself, I have a new book coming out. It'll be on January 7th. It is an audio book. It will only be an audio book, and it's called, I have to remember the title because we just titled it. It's called Nice Girls Don't Speak Up or Stand Out, How to Make Your Point Known, Your Voice Heard, and Your Presence Felt, and it's all about communication. Mm. Exciting. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll look out for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Psychology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Join us next time with a brand new topic. Please tune in then.